before I dismiss our kids, uh, I'd like to go ahead and just go straight from singing that into a word of prayer. So if you would, let's just pray together this morning. What we just sang comes straight from uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Father, we're so grateful for the truths that we were um, just invited and able to sing of. Thank you for opening up our lips for the pleasure and the privilege it is to sing of you and to praise you. Lord, the reality is, uh, I don't know about most, but uh, at least for me, I come in um, this morning wanting to boast in a lot of things other than you, Uh, whether it's wisdom or might or strength or riches. But Lord, thankful uh, for your church, thankful for this time period, every Sunday, every week, we get a constant reminder of the beauty it is to boast in this, that we understand and know you. Thankful for a God that is um, desirous to be known, willing to be known, willing to reveal himself to us. Thank you that you let us know you. I pray today that as we study your word, as we read your word, as we preach your word, that you would help us, you would aid us, grace us just to know you a little bit more. I pray for those who are here who may not know you at all, may know of you, like facts on a page, but doesn't know you personally, relationally. I pray that today would be the day they get to join us in this boast. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, you heard me. If you're a second through fifth grader uh, and you have been checked in, meaning you have a name tag, you guys can go ahead and head out the back. Your teachers are waiting for you there. Um, this is probably, what, our third week, maybe, of, of dismissing our second through fifth graders like this. So if you're new with us and you're a parent and you're like, what just happened? Where's my kid going? Um, you're going to pick those children up at the Wetlands Building, which is the building in our parking lot. Uh, if you have any questions about that process, about what that looks like, do not hesitate to ask somebody. Uh, you, you can see some of our team with lanyards on. Um, but Awesome. Well, let's, let's dive in this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We are in Philippians chapter 1 again. But good news, this is the last week we will be in Philippians chapter 1. We'll finally close out chapter 1. But can't wait till chapter 2. Chapter 1's been good to us. But I'm going to give you plenty of time to find your way there. Um, when I was in third or fourth grade, um, I, I, I learned a lesson that I'll never forget. I'd really tried to rack my brain this week to think of what the context of this lesson was, but I, I really can't remember the details of it. But the like aha moment that I encountered in this lesson, like I'll, I'll never lose it. I'll never forget it. And here's kind of how it went. Vague context was I, was I had a school project, again, third or fourth grade, where I was tasked with measuring and cutting 20 pieces of wood all to equal length. Okay? So took my first piece tape measured, measured it out, marked it, handsaw, cut it, okay? Got my first piece. Then what I did is I, I used my first piece as a standard, right, as a measure, as my criteria, and I, I put it on top of that second piece, marked it, cut it. Here's where thing fell off the rails, okay? Threw away, not threw away, but discarded the first piece and then used my second piece as my new standard, as my new measure. Put it on top of the third piece, marked it, cut it, okay? Then I put the second piece away, used my new piece, my third piece, as my 
standard, has my measure, marked it, cut it all the way till these 20 pieces are completed. And some of you look at me blankly because you think, what's wrong with that? Well, let me tell you what's wrong with that, okay? I used 19 different standards to try to get 20 pieces of wood all cut the same length. And, and what I had at the end of all of that work were 20 pieces of wood, all different sizes. And the reason is because every piece had just a, just a variable, just a little bit of difference in its length. And I kept using different pieces, so every piece got shorter or longer as I went on. What I should have done, and you know, I was in third and fourth grade, so don't judge me, okay? I had to learn. What I should have done is measure that first piece, cut that first piece, and use that, that piece, right? My single standard. Use one standard to measure and cut a remaining pieces. As we look to our text this week, what I'm aware of is that when it comes to Christian living, when it comes to how we should act, how we should behave, what we should do, when it comes to Christian living, we have too many standards. We have too many things that we use to measure our act, measure our conduct, evaluate our lives. We have too many. Let me give you a few examples. For a lot of us, we measure ourselves, our measuring sticks are, are horizontal, right? It's your spouse, it's people you know, people you work with, and, and to some, you measure up real well, right? And then to others, you know, man, I'm not as good of a Christian as that person. You kind of fall short. So we horizontally use a standard. Other times we use Christian influencers, right? Whatever Matt Chandler says and, and whatever John Piper says and does or, or who, uh, whatever Christian celebrity, which is an oxymoron, okay? Whoever that is, you know, whatever he says we should say and do, that, that's how I pattern my life. We use Christian influencers as a standard. For a lot of us, we use our own consciences, right? It's just whatever I think and feel to be right. For, for a lot of us, we... We bring our like church baggage and traditions with us. I was raised, right, I've said this before, in a, in a background where if I didn't drink, didn't cuss, and abstained from certain things until marriage, I'm good, right? But in other ways, if you did those things, just shame, shame on you, lots of shame, because that was my standard. But when it comes to our behavior, when it comes to what it means to live as a Christian, we don't need 19 standards. We need one. We need a single standard that helps us evaluate and measure the conduct of our lives, and that's what our text is going to show today. So I'm going to read our text in our entirety, and then um, go, go ahead and unpack it for us. But here's where we're headed. Here's a little outline. We're going to see that we need a single standard to stand steadfast, even in the face of suffering. Y'all follow that? A single sta standard to stand steadfast with suffering. So let's read Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All right, that's our text for today. So before I start to unpack point number one, I want to remind us a little bit of context. It's been a few weeks since we kind of talk about Philippians as a whole, so I just want to remind you very quickly the context of this book, okay? Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Philippi. Philippi was in modern-day Greece, and, but Paul is writing this letter 
from Rome. He's at a a five-star resort. I'm just kidding. He's in prison in Rome. Paul is in prison in Rome awaiting his verdict. He's either going to be acquitted and, and continue to live and preach, or he's going to be convicted, and he will die because of his conviction. Okay? So Paul's in prison writing a letter to the church in Philippi, and this is a church that he loves. It's a church he has a deep partnership with because 10 years prior to the writing of this letter, he actually planted this church. He visited Philippi, shared the gospel with some Philippians, and the church was born. Paul loved this church, and this church loved Paul. And they heard about Paul's imprisonment all the way in the city of Rome, and they were concerned about him. They wanted to know how he was holding up, so they, they voted, and they sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome to check on Paul, to provide some of his basic necessities, but also to see how he's holding up. And Paul, in the first 26 verses of this letter, he, he writes a letter right back to the church in Philippi. In the first 26 verses, he just tells the Philippians, you don't need to worry about me. If I could summarize, he's saying, don't, um, don't be concerned for me. I'm fine. In fact, I'm more than fine. Right? What we've seen, he's saying, I re- I'm rejoicing. I love being in prison. I love waiting to see if I'm going to live or die. Because if I live, that means more people get to hear the gospel. And if I die, I get to see the God of the gospel. So Paul's like, man, this is awesome. Don't be concerned for me. I'm doing just fine. But in this letter, he goes, I'm, I'm actually concerned for you. That's what Paul's saying. 26 verses, he goes, it's, my, my health is okay. Don't be concerned for me. Beginning in verse 27, everything shifts. His subject shifts. His, his focus shifts. Instead of focusing on himself and his welfare, he's now beginning to focus on the welfare of the church in Philippi. Okay? So he's moving away from informing them how he's doing, and now he's beginning to exhort the church on how they're doing. You following me? All right, so that's verse 27. The first thing that he says is this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's our standard, church. That is our single standard, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, only, meaning above all, meaning if I could boil down everything that I want to exhort you in and tell you, it would be this, live like the gospel. That's all he wants us to do. That's a single standard he wants us to have. This gospel, the word gospel, pops up all over the book of Philippians. In 27 verses so far, we've seen that the gospel is the source of Paul's thanksgivings. The gospel is the foundation of his partnership with the church. The gospel is the source of his irrational joy while he faces death. And now in verse 27, he says, the gospel is how I want you to live your life. The gospel is the standard. So this gospel thing, kind of a big deal. So before we go any further. I just want you to give me like 10 minutes to make sure we're all on the same page about what is the gospel. Okay, glad you asked. The gospel is is Greek. It means, it's the Greek word evangelion, and it's just translated as good news. So gospel, by definition, means good news. So anytime you see the word gospel in the Bible, it is the good news of salvation found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of salvation found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to help you understand this this good news of Jesus by helping us understand the bad news, right? So I'm so glad you came here to be encouraged this morning because I am about to put a foot on all of us, okay? The bad news is really bad, but the bad news makes the good news even better. 
Here's the bad news. Before Christ came, there was actually a standard that God was holding us accountable to, and it's called the law. The law. And for centuries, people have tried with all of their might to follow the law perfectly. But because every person in this room and all throughout history was born of Adam, it was impossible. Because in Adam, we all inherited this thing called a sin nature. Our little Pollyanna millennialist perspective wants us to think that, well, no, everybody deep down is just inherently good. False. Right? We want to convince ourselves. We don't, we don't like to see things negatively, but you've got to see the bad news to understand the good news. The bad news is that deep down, you are not inherently good. Everyone is inherently evil. Parents, no amens. Why do we have to work so hard and so tirelessly as parents to teach our kids what is right and to teach our kids how to behave right when doing what is wrong was their factory settings? Why? Because they were born with this, this sin nature. We all inherit it from Adam. So it's bad news because you, you may not even know the law of Moses. You may not have studied it. You may not even know exactly what God requires of you. But you know deep down, I am not living the way that I should. And you don't even have any concept of God. But, but you're like, how do I even make sense? How is my conscience telling me I'm not living the way that I should? It's because something was written on you. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that the law actually is written on your heart. You were created to live according to the way God created you to live. But because of the sin in you, you can't. Like you can't do it. It's, it's impossible. Like a dog returning to its vomit is what the Proverbs say we are. We're just fools that constantly return to our folly. Right? Your conscience is bear you witness. You, you may not have even read the Bible at all one time. And you know you do things that you know you shouldn't. And you know you think things that you know you shouldn't. And you know that you should do things you know you should, but you can't. Because our consciences are seared with this thing called sin. It's really, really bad news because the, the consequences or the punishment for sin is, is death. God is, is holy, y'all. Not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. In the Bible, there's only one way to, to really emphasize something. It's just keep repeating it. And there's only one thing that in the Bible that gets repeated three times, and that is the holiness of God. He is so holy and he is so perfect that he cannot be in relationship with people like us. Because we're imperfect, we're unholy, so our consequence is death. death. Death is, sure, breathing your last, but death is way more than that. Death is a separation from God, because God is the source of all life. So if you're living in your sins apart from Jesus Christ right now, you are experiencing a level of death. And you know it. You, you know that there is meaning and purpose that evades you because you have not found life in the gospel of Jesus. But death is also eternal. And when we breathe our last, we will forever be separated from God if we die in our sins. Bad news. Can we agree with that? Bad news. I'm glad I could encourage you. Coleman will preach next week. You'll be, you'll be pumped up, okay? So we're all guilty. We've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. And, and the bad news is, is really bad, but man, it paves the way for some really, really good news. And I want to tell you about the good news using two Old Testament words, okay? I'm going to SAT quiz you on this vocab later, okay? I want to talk to you about the gospel as atonement and the gospel as propitiation. That's a fun one to say, okay? Let me start with the gospel as atonement. So many times people ask me, why is the God of the Old Testament 
so different than the God of the New Testament. Anybody ever felt that, worried that, questioned that? You're like, no, I'm a good, good, good Christian. I can't question that. I know you have. He's not. He's the same. He never changes. You change. We change. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, God, in his love, in his grace, in his kindness, and in his mercy, actually provided a way for your sins to be atoned for. That word atone means covered, concealed, hidden. It means covered. God provided in the Old Testament a way for your sins to be covered, and it was found in sacrifice. Why? Because the payment of sin is what? Death. There's no forgiveness of sins without, without the shedding of blood. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. So the payment of sin has to be death. So, so God provided a way. So if you sin, in Numbers chapter 5, if you sin, you can go and buy what is called a lamb of atonement. And you can bring it to the temple or to the tabernacle, to the priest, and you can go, kill it on my behalf. And that lamb of atonement will be your substitute for your sin so that your sins can now be atoned for. It can be covered. But even, y'all, even with that gracious provision by God, you know what you would have to do the next day? Come back. And then the next day, and the next day, and the next Actually, more realistic, you'd probably need to come back the next hour. The next hour. Let's be real, okay? The next minute. You would, you would walk out of the tabernacle atoned and have to turn right back in because your thoughts and your actions and your attitudes and your motivations are continually betraying you. Why? Because of your sin nature. So what did God do? Well, God, in his great love for you, made a way to break that cycle. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him will never die, but have eternal life. Church, God sent Jesus, who is not some common, ordinary lamb. He is the very lamb of God, a man born of a woman. That's why the virgin birth is so important. He was not born of Adam which means he did not inherit Adam's sin nature. He was born of God, born of a woman. So he came and lived a sinless, perfect life and chose to die a criminal's death, yours, so that your sins can be atoned for, your sins can be covered. That, that's the good news. That's the gospel of atonement. What about the gospel of propitiation? All right, so First John chapter 2, verse 1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is this, by definition. It is the act by which God becomes propitious. I'm just helpful. Propitious means becoming favorable towards those who have offended. Propitious is the act of God by, by which God becomes favorable towards those who offended him. Did you know that your sin offends God? It offends him. Whoever coined the phrase, God hates the sin but loves the sinner, has not read the Bible. That's controversial. Google it. I can think of about 15 references in Psalms along where it talks about God's hatred towards sinners. God is offended by our sin. God's offended by our state. God is offended, and, and, and because he is offended in his holiness, it requires wrath. We are deserving of God's wrath. We have offended him, yet God has created a way, made a way, provided a way for his wrath 
to be appeased and his favor to be restored to mankind. You know where that way is found? At the cross. It's found at the cross. When you look at the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. And when you stand underneath the cross, God's favor is poured out on you. The cross is the way for God to be propitiation for us. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Church, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And Paul's saying in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he's saying, let your manner of life be worthy of that. Now, don't confuse what he's saying. He's not saying, live in such a way that you, you can be worthy and, and earn that. He's not saying, maybe you can be worthy enough to earn that good news. That is not what he is saying. He is saying, because God has gone to such great lengths to atone for you and to provide favor for you, maybe you should live from that position. We do not earn our acceptance before God. It is given to us by, by Christ. So live. Live as if you've received the greatest gift on earth. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Church, that's our standard, the gospel of Jesus. In your Bible, if you have footnotes, in verse 27, let your manner of life, you may see a footnote that says this, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That's an actual better translation. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. And the church in Philippi would have un, like, totally understood what Paul was trying to communicate. Because Philippi was a Roman colony. They spoke Latin as the Roman language. They wore Roman dress. They used the Roman currency. They accepted the privileges and the responsibilities of being Roman citizens. Paul saying, you Philippians, the church, you are citizens. So behave accordingly. You're, you're just not citizens of Rome anymore. You're now citizens of heaven. So Paul's saying, so act like citizens of heaven. Love is the civil responsibility as a citizen of heaven. So Paul's saying, just love. Generosity, not greed, is the way that a citizen of heaven acts, so give. Leadership, as a citizen of heaven, is to serve others, not to promote yourself. So live accordingly, and on and on and go. This is kind of what Jesus came to teach us. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going, here's the operating system of heaven. Here's how we need to operate. And Paul's going, listen, man, just, just live like that. Like, just live as citizens of heaven. Every Sunday, we conclude by saying what? Go and be the church, right? We have totally made you drink that Kool-Aid. You, you, you go and be the church. Somehow that statement has generated a lot of confusion over the last 18 months, and, and people have reduced Go and be the church to, to like, headed to your favorite Mexican restaurant after church, which there's three options, and you go, and, and you get all robotic and stiff and weird, and you're like, we're supposed to be the church, so you, you pray louder before your meals that everybody around you knows you went to church, right? No? Okay. I know some of you. I was there. Just kidding. All right, so, so that's, that's not what we mean. What, what we mean by going and being the church is, is to be so enamored by the good news found in Jesus Christ, that, that you just live accordingly. That when you go to your meeting tomorrow, you let the gospel drive your attitude at that meeting tomorrow. 
that when you, when you coach your youth sports this week, you, you let the gospel dictate your behaviors. We've said this one before. When you're commuting and you're stuck on Abercorn, you let the gospel drive and propel what hand motions you use at people cutting you off. The gospel dictates how we live. Going and being the church isn't acting in a certain way. It's not performing in a certain way. It's going, I am purchased by Jesus. I'm going to live for Jesus. It's just, it's just simple. But it's not easy. It's not easy. It, it, it's actually really, really, really hard. And Paul says in verse 27, he says, I want you to live this way so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent. You remember being in grade school and your teacher stepped out into the hallway for a minute? What ensued in that classroom? Chaos, pandemonium. And you always had one student that was like the, the snitch. You know, it's like, go look out the door. Let us know if she's coming. You know, and as soon as she starts to come, everybody runs back to the desk and, and you sit. And it's so quiet in there, you can hear a pin drop. Paul's going, don't do that. Don't behave like that. Like, don't let my presence or my absence dictate how you live. Let the gospel be your single standard. Not the apostle Paul, not the pastor. It's uncomfortable for me when I walk up on a conversation and it changes all of a sudden. Everybody gets really stiff and weird. Don't let my presence or my absence dictate how you act, how you talk, how you behave. Let the gospel be the single driver of your conduct and of your behavior. But y'all, to live this way, it's going to be really hard. Have I said that since we've gone through Philippians? It's going to be hard. You know why it's going to be hard to let the gospel drive your behaviors? Because it is going to be contrary to the citizenship of this earth. Like citizens of this world do not want you to operate as citizens of heaven. Paul's trying to warn them. Paul's going to say, you're going to have some opponents. Don't be frightened by them. I'm going to get there in a second. But Paul understood this experientially. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul planted the church in Philippi, you know what happened to Paul? He was arrested, kind of a thing for him, and beaten. And this is why. The, the Roman citizens of Philippi went to the judge and said, these men advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Paul was persecuted because he was operating as a citizen of heaven, which is contrary to the customs of Rome. Newsflash. Operating as a citizen of heaven today is going to be contrary to being the civil responsibilities of a citizen of America. Let go of this ideal that America is a Christian nation. Let it go. The church is the Christian nation. We are now bought as citizens of heaven. And guess what? Living accordingly is going to be opposed because it's contrary to the citizenship of this world. So Paul says, so if that's going to be your single standard, you better learn how to stand steadfast. Let's keep reading in our text. Point number two, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Church, a life lived according to the gospel will be opposed. It is going to be opposed. Somehow, we've concocted this mental picture of what it means to be a Christian, as some monastic, cloistered, contemplative lifestyle. Sure, you can have that. Jesus said, pray. And when you do, don't be seen by men. Go into the closet. But then he also said, go into the world and make disciples. Being a Christian, being the church is not some hidden, cloistered thing. Y'all, we are actually called to get out there. 
in the open, vulnerable, exposed. As Martin Luther penned in his beautiful hymn, this world with devils filled will threaten to undo us. And Paul goes, because of that, if you're going to live this way, you need to learn how to stand firm. The, the Greek word picture here of standing firm is, is very militaristic. It's like a soldier standing at his post, unwilling to budge. I, I know that we have a lot of soldiers in here. You have a better picture of this than I do. But, but what I think of is the, Roman, I mean the, uh, the uh, British royal guards. You ever seen their pictures or videos? The red coat guys with the Q-tip black hats. You know what I'm talking about? And they just stand there and tourists come to the, to the Queen's Palace and they like mimic them and mime them trying to get a few laughs and Instagram likes and then those guys just stand there. They're real soldiers, real guns, real weapons, real bullets, like real duties and they're totally unfazed. That's the picture we need to have. That we're going to stand firm, unwilling to budge. We are going to take our place in this world unintimidated and stand steadfast. And this stance, y'all, the ability to be steadfast in a world that opposes you is not conjured up by your own self-will. Like we can't white-knuckle this lifestyle. Today, I'm going to be steadfast. No, this posture is actually sourced from our standard. It's actually found in the gospel. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if he who, who gave up his only son for our salvation, who went to such great lengths to give up his only son for our salvation, will he not freely give us with him all things needed to live this life? The gospel is so good that he went such great lengths to save us, he's going to continue to go to great lengths to strengthen you so that we can stand steadfast. Our ability to stand firm is sourced in the gospel. But we need to keep reading this text because as Americans, it's really easy for us to, to just kind of fly by the remainder of this verse and, and take this to be an individualistic command. Who's Paul writing to here? The church. And they didn't have Gutenberg. So, so there was no printed. So, so he, one person get us, gets up and he, and he reads the letter to the church. This is a command for the church to stand firm. It's a collective exhortation. It is not just an independent, individualistic exhortation. Stand firm in one spirit. Church, standing firm in lives that are worthy of the gospel is going to require one another. We, we need each other. We, we need to stand in unity. And the unity that the Bible proclaims is a unity in the midst of incredible diversity. The unity that the gospel provides, it, it breaks down barriers of race, of economics, of, of different behaviors and belief systems, and, and whether you live in Buckhead East or, or Buckhead North, like every division that exists in this world, the gospel tears that down and it becomes primary. Our unity is sourced in the gospel. Romans chapter 10 says there's no distinction in the gospel between Jew and Greek. Ephesians 4 says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. 1 Corinthians 12 says in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. When we were missionaries cross-culturally and didn't know a single Christian, as soon as we would meet another Christian, we knew that person. There, it would, I can't explain it. It's supernatural. It's like, that's my brother. There's just this oneness that exists when people are unified in the gospel. And we need that unity to be able to stand firm in our culture, in our world, against citizens of this earth and not of heaven. But he goes on and says, you need to possess this unity in, in spirit, but also in mind. 
the mind raises questions as to what we consider valuable or, or what our collective beliefs tend to be. Y'all, for far too long the church has, has lived without this unity because we have been willing to divide over anything. Right? It's become normative to accept local churches dividing. May that not be our case. I will fight that. I will fight division in this church because the world is watching. And we are commanded to live out of the gospel, which unifies us and allows us to stand firm in, in one spirit and in one mind. Now listen, I understand you have preferences. We can't be a church that divides over carpet colors and music choices and small group curriculums. Do you know how regularly that happens? You know why it happens? Because the gospel takes a back seat. And personal preferences or secondary desires takes the primary seat. It can't happen. We've got to live according to the gospel and let the gospel produce our unity. And now listen, I'm glad you have preferences. You can email me those at ccollins at richmondhill.com. I'm just kidding. I'm glad we have, we have preferences. And, and listen, even, even around our beliefs, I want for every one of you, if this church is not your church home, I want you to find a church home that you can align with from your reading of the scripture that that church possesses doctrinally, like across the board. As long as someone's preaching the gospel from the word of God, I want you to find a church that you can align with. But listen, if you believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased a long time ago, and you're worshiping right next to someone who believes that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still alive today, good. Debate it if you want, but don't you dare divide over that, because is that a gospel issue? No, it's secondary. Listen, you're a post-millennialist. And the person behind you is an amillennialist. And the person in front of you doesn't even know what I'm talking about. Debate that. Dis discourse that. Great. But y'all, those are secondary theological and doctrinal issues. You should never divide over that because that's not a gospel issue. We've got to let the gospel drive our unity. Now listen, later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul's going to warn the church in Philippi about false teachers. He's going to say that there are false teachers. There are people that are going to preach a different gospel. There are people who are going to actually promote and tolerate sin in your life. As long as that's okay with you. As long, whatever you want to do. This is rampant in America right now. Teaching that promotes and tolerates sin in your life. Paul's going to say that's going to happen. But listen, if that happens, run. Divide. Get out of there. Because if anybody preaches a different gospel, may he be accursed. That's from Galatians, which is such a scary, scary position to stand up here every Sunday and preach. Get out of there. You can't be an enemy of the gospel. But if the gospel is proclaimed, if we can unify around the gospel, let that drive our stance. Let that drive our steadfastness. Let's go back. We want this unity. We want one spirit. We want to stand steadfast. Why? So that we can strive. Look at the end of verse 27. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's going, listen, live out of the gospel, let the gospel unify you so that you can actually strive side by side to advance the gospel. The picture, once again, is, is of a, a military cohort who stands with a shield and spear, and they're standing shoulder to shoulder like the Spartans in 300, and they're taking incremental steps forward. They're advancing shoulder to shoulder. That's the picture of the church. That's what we have. If we can prioritize the gospel and let the gospel drive our posture, then we can Advance the gospel. And he says, so, so that you won't be frightened. 
He's like, I want you to press forward. I want you to advance this gospel together. And, and don't be frightened. Th- that Greek word for frightened is like a horse that gets startled. You ever been on a horse that gets startled? That's terrifying. But it's so quick. I mean, those fast twitch muscles in those horses. I mean, it, it just panics them. And, and Paul's saying, don't get startled like that. Don't panic like a horse in that situation. Church, if I could say one thing every Sunday, it's this. Stop being so afraid. Like you, like me. I, if you have toes, I'm going to step on them today, okay? If I could say anything to the church in America, and hopefully God will continue to use me to say it, it's stop being so afraid. Great. Satan's roaring around like a prowling lion, see, seeking someone to devour. I know. I read it. I understand that our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Don't be afraid. Don't be frightened by that. Don't be panicked by that. Listen, I know that they, never mind, we never know who they is, but they are coming for your kids. I know. You know why? Because I've read it. And I'm not afraid because Jesus told us it was going to happen a long time ago. He says, listen, the world hates you. Great. It hated me long before it hated you. Paul says in 1 Timothy, if you seek to live according to the gospel, you know what you can get? Persecution. That's your goal, to live such a godly life that the citizens of this world want to shut you up. That's the goal of the world, is to quench the gospel. And the goal of the church is to stand side by side to advance the gospel. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't be frightened. Let the gospel unify us. Let us advance it. Now, now not advancing militaristically. I'm not talking about some Christian nationalism. I'm not talking about Peter ripping out a sword and cutting off somebody's ear. Jesus said, put that up. That's not my kingdom. That's not the way the citizens of heaven ought to live. I'm talking about with as much grace and as much love and as much compassion us standing firm in the truth of the gospel and making dents in the kingdom of darkness slowly but surely. Church, can we wake up? If the church ceases to be salt and light, what do you think our culture is going to do? It's going to decay. Salt preserves things. We, the church, are the salt of the earth. We are to preserve the gospel on the earth. And if we run and we lock ourselves away and throw away the key and throw our head into the sand and we hide from the world, don't complain to me that the world is continuing to decay. We have a task to do. We're to stand side by side and advance this gospel, y'all. In verse 28, he says, when you do this, when you, when you lock arms with the church and strive side by side and, and you advance, not retreat, but you advance, he goes, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but, but of your salvation, and that's from God. This can be a confusing statement, but it just means when the world sees a unified church living by the gospel, living to advance the gospel, then they will be confronted by the truthfulness of the gospel. And people will either respond, and that'll be unto their salvation, or it will be unto their destruction. Our standard and our stance serve as a warning to the world to accept the truth. A church gripped by the gospel, standing for Christ, standing for eternal things, enduring worldly loss and disrepute, it'll show the truthfulness of the gospel. So Paul says, don't be startled. Don't, Don't panic. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. That's not all he says. He doesn't say, just don't be afraid. Look at verse 29. This will blow your mind. For it has been granted to you, That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
What? Anybody read that this morning in their quiet time and go, yeah, I want that. No, I think we can all agree the gift of salvation is such a sweet gift of grace. How many of you have gone, you know what, suffering, similar? No. We've got, I know that I have a unique perspective by living overseas, but we have got to get out of this, this unbiblical mindset that we are just so blessed here in America to worship. Paul would say, you're actually blessed to be persecuted. Just, I'm going to let that sink. That is a total paradigm shift for us. This is so different. Well, but pastor, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Well, how'd that work out for Jesus? What about his disciples? We, we are the only church. The Western church is the only church that pursues comfort above all things. But we start pursuing the gospel above all things. We will be opposed by this culture because we'll start stepping on toes. And guess what that's going to result in? Persecution. And, and Paul says, well, listen, if persecution comes, Philippians, comes Richmond Hillians, man, you're blessed. What a, what a gift. You, it's been granted to you. It's a gift. Your suffering is a gift. And, and church, I don't have time to talk about a theology of suffering here, but, but you see, suffering has so many benefits, but one of them, it, it moves us away from being beneficiaries of the gospel only and actually puts us in, in nearness and intimacy with Christ. Paul writes about how there's a fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. When you, when you suffer for Jesus, there, there's just this nearness. There's this intimacy that you can't find in any other season. I think it's because God promised that when we are suffering, he will provide us the comforter, right? But we as the church in America, we seek to be comfortable above all else. So if you want to surround yourself with comfort, then you will miss out on what? The comforter. You can be your own comfort, or you can live radically for Jesus and experience the comforter as your comforter. It's a beautiful gift of grace, special intimacy with those who suffer with Jesus. You know, and it's often, and I'm going to close with this, but it's often suffering that, that God utilizes to advance the gospel. Missiologists, which are just people who study world missions, say that the gospel has actually advanced further and faster in the last 150 years than all the previous centuries uh, before. But consequently, there's been more Christian martyrs in the last 150 years than the previous 1,800 years combined. More people. And, and you're like, wait, what? Yeah, because it's not our paradigm. But, but people are dying for their faith daily across the world. And, and since we're on this incredibly feel-good topic, let me just put the nail in the proverbial coffin. I, I'm going to end by quoting Bible commentator D.A. Carson. Just, just hear what D.A. Carson writes. He, he says, It is not at all impossible if present trends continue in the West that opposition here in America to the gospel will extend beyond family disapproval and trouble at work and condescension from intellectual colleagues and the like. And it will become very real, concrete persecution. Do you, do you see those trends? I do. When we were praying about going back to the mission field or planting a church in America, somebody said, if you're going to plant a church, be ready to plant one that knows how to suffer. I think that was really good advice. I don't know what the next decade, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years looks like for the church in the West, but I got a feeling it's going to look like suffering. But I think we can be ready. I know that we can be ready. I know that we can embrace that suffering because if we can keep the gospel primary, 
and, and let that be the, the stance that we take. We, we take a stance from the gospel, then we'll be ready to stand steadfast. We'll be ready to suffer well. And maybe, like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, we too, maybe 20 years, 30 years, 40, I don't know, maybe we too will be able to leave a governing council that just beat us and just, and just hurt us, and we will be able to rejoice. Acts chapter 4, read it. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. What a different paradigm that would be. I, I think we can be ready, and maybe that will be our story as well. Maybe not. I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a Christian masochist. I'm not like going out looking for pain. But I do think we can be prepared for it. So until then, and, and as long as it's legal for me to preach the gospel, let's preach the gospel. Let's utilize the blessings of our culture to advance the gospel, not to sit back in our recliners and get fat and comfortable. Let's use it to move the gospel, and then maybe we'll be ready. So I'm going to pray for us. Sorry to end on such a low note, um, but if you'll stand with me, our team's going to come back up and lead us through a time of response. But let me pray for us. Father, I'm so great, grateful for the gospel. So grateful for the lengths that you went to to atone for our sins, to be the propitiation for our sins so that now when you see us, when we come boldly to your throne of grace, we are viewed as objects of favor, as sons, as daughters, welcomed by a prodigal father. Thank you for the work that you did and accomplished in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's such good news to us, Lord. But I pray for us that we wouldn't I don't know, just accept the good news for salvation, but that we, like the Philippians, would, would be exhorted to live accordingly, to live lives worthy of the gospel. May we be so enamored daily, not just on the day of our salvation, but daily with the good news of the gospel that we would live accordingly. And then consequently, God, would we be able to stand steadfast. I, I pray that you would help us, sourced in the gospel, link arms with one another, protect us from disunity, Protect us from, from the whispers of the enemy that seeks to wreak havoc on the church of God. Protect other churches in this community. Protect other churches in our state, and our country. May we be able to unify around the gospel. But if there is a gospel that is preached other than the grace of God in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would pull those churches down. God, if, what, what did I just pray? I, I just, I pray for the gospel to be primary. Even us, Lord, it's just so easy to drift. Help us by your grace, by your mercy. Help us to be protected, to keep the gospel pure, undefiled. And may it humble us, humble us in such a way that, that we link arms with one another and we are compelled by love to be your ambassadors, to implore others to be reconciled to Christ. And if our passion to live according to the gospel results in persecution, results in suffering, I pray that we would have the perspective of Paul, that it would be a, a gift, a gift of grace, a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer for your name. I don't pray that that would come quickly. I just pray that you would help us to be ready if it does. And ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.